Hello and welcome back. You're listening to season two of Adam Was Mad, a podcast where we discuss all things childhood mental health. I'm your host, Michelle, and each week I speak with a guest who either experienced mental health struggles as a child themselves, is parenting a child who has a mental health diagnosis, or who's a professional in this field. A quick cautionary note, many of our episodes do talk about trauma of various kinds, so listener discretion is advised. Every story is important and valued, and every story reminds us we're not alone out there. You have a village of people who understand exactly what you're going through and who can help. If you're looking to connect more closely with that village, join us on Facebook in the group Your Village by following the link at the top of today's show notes. When you join, enter your email to receive our free monthly resource. Hopefully you'll learn something new, hear something interesting, or truly just be reminded that you're not alone. Without any further ado, let's get to today's episode. I got my packet in the mail that said, your special needs child. And I was like, what are you talking about? Nobody prepared me for that. It was all consuming. This is it. This is my life. I basically stay home in this house and therapists come. And that's all I think about. It's all I do. It was very disheartening, very devastating, really. It's easy to say that it's not our fault, but those feelings of guilt, I think, are universal. Why is this all on me? Where did we get this idea that if you're not like the most devoted, I will do anything for my child kind of parent, not that I wouldn't, but unless you're effusive about it, then you're a less than mother. I absolutely wanted some magic bullet. Who wouldn't? He's struggling. I'm struggling. Everybody's struggling. I want this to be easier. So whatever that is, I want that. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being back with me today. I have with me Jane, who is going to share her parenting journey with us. Welcome, Jane. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to have you. Will you tell me when you first started to notice that your parenting journey looked different than the journey of parents around you? Yeah, I had um, I had been part of a parent group, like a play group, um, from when my child was an infant, really. As part of this play group, you know, they're infants and they're all babies and they don't do much except so it was really like for us to get together um but then I started to see you know everyone else's kids doing things that my kid wasn't doing and you know you're terrified my first child I didn't really want to believe that and everyone was very like oh you know everybody develops differently and it's fine and blah 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 and um I was at my nine months checkup with him and gratefully I had a pediatrician who was pretty savvy and pretty on top of things because a lot of times they they really don't, they tell you the same thing. Oh, don't worry, they'll catch up. Don't worry, that's fine. And early intervention is really important, So, which I didn't know at the time. But she said, I'm not crazy about physically the way he's sitting. He's still doing this tripoding thing. I was like, oh, okay. Um, and they kept asking me, is he meeting his milestones? Is he grief? grasping for things and he was like babbling like crazy and I thought he was going to talk early and you know 
So she said, well, we're going to, you know, refer you to early intervention and they'll probably come do some physical therapy and he'll catch up and everything will be fine. I'm like, oh, sounds good to me. Let's get what it, get him whatever help he needs. So I go through the process and I call and I, you know, it's like, it wasn't just, you make a phone call and someone comes, it was this whole intake thing. You know, they're asking me questions like, does he spin things a lot? I'm like, oh, yeah, he kind of does. And um, then I got my packet in the mail that said, your special needs child. And I was like, what are you talking about? What the what? <laughs> I had no preparation for that. I, di I didn't know that's what was going to be coming my way. So that was the moment I was like, oh, okay, this is just more than he's going to do a little physical therapy and catch up, I guess, or is it? I didn't, I, I had no contact, nobody prepared me for that. Um, and then when the therapist finally, we went through um, big evaluation um, up in Westchester County in New York and watching the therapists and the doctors and whatever put him through this battery of, you know, developmental evaluations and assessments and he couldn't do anything they were asking him to do. Nothing. Wow. And I was just like, oh my God. So the therapist comes and like babies containerize things. So they take a block and they put it into a, that's why they have those like shaped cookie jar thing. So he had this toy and there were the shapes that matched. And, you know, you could either put it into the top of the cookie jar, or you could put it into the shape part of the cookie jar he could not they would they I will never forget they would sit there okay Jackson put in put in and they put the block in his hand and they'd look at them <laughs> and it wasn't necessarily that he didn't know what they were asking him to do necessarily but he didn't have the motor plan to actually do it when they asked him right so that was when I knew something was really not going well <laughs> And ultimately, we ended up at a fantastic developmental pediatrician in New York City who diagnosed him with global apraxia, um, which is a severe motor planning issue. So it had a lot to do with communication, for sure. He couldn't really form, use his muscles the right way to form words, to get air out when he was supposed to. But he also had fine and gross motor, motor planning issues. So he had to be shown how to crawl. He had to be shown how to walk. And um yeah. So that was when it was like 11 months when the therapist first came and it was just like everything changed. <laughs> yeah. Everything. I, you know, I picture you sitting there and receiving that packet that said your special needs child. And it is like the air gets knocked out of you. Like you have all the breath gets knocked out of your chest because all of a sudden it's the first time you're seeing those words and you know, consciously that having a label like that can be really helpful because you want to get that early intervention. You want to know how to help your child, but at the same time, seeing that label for the first time, it's jarring to say the least. Praxia is a motor planning disorder. It affects speech. It affects walking, crawling, talking, using scissors it affects really everything right it's a global yeah. um, it can diagnosis. Be, yes. it can be verbal only and it can be global we've got the global kind now what are some of the challenges that you guys went through for for any other 
kid, you kind of show them something once, maybe they, maybe you help them do it and then they kind of understand. And he, he needs um, multiple, like multiple, multiple, multiple repetitions of, of hand over hand assistance in order to get the motor plan wired into his brain about what he's supposed to do. And then the apraxia piece also makes it hard for him to do that on command. So he'll say a word randomly that I've never heard him say. And if you ask him to say it again, he can't do it. So that's one of the characteristics of verbal apraxia. Daniel Radcliffe, Harry Potter, apparently he has apraxia. Oh, and I didn't he's an know actor. that. Yeah. So, you know, there's a wide range. <laughs> um, yes. And there's lots of, and we went to lots of conferences about apraxia to learn what we could do to help him because typically you have more receptive language than you do expressive language. Um, what we didn't really understand is he also has intellectual disability, which was hard to know in the beginning. He also is, falls on the autism spectrum, which we were also told don't, don't go down that road because the reason he does things is because of communication, not necessarily because of autism. So the function of his behavior is different. So for a long time, we were sort of in denial that he had autism, but clearly he has autism. Plus the placement for him in school was really, there's no apraxia program, there's right. autism programs. So that's where he was. So it was all consuming. I couldn't work. I couldn't sleep because he didn't sleep through the night um, mm. until he was about 10. Wow. Um, he also has yeah. <laughs> so I, I mean, sleep deprivation is a torture technique for a good reason. Oh, <laughs> it's absolutely. Awful. It's and, awful. And it's really hard to do the things that you need to do uh, because you're so exhausted. And then it's when you don't sleep, it's, it leads to depression. I mean, there's, there's, it's, it's like this snowball effect. Um, the amount of guilt I had, the amount of of you know everything just my life this is it this is my life I basically stay home in this house and therapists come and that's all I think about it's all I do it was very disheartening very um devastating really um because that was not the parenting journey I was expecting which you know it never is so you know, okay, so you have a child with special needs and or of one kind or another, it's never, you've never expected that necessarily, um, unless you know going in. Um, my intention was always to go back to work and to, you know, we were, we were a traveling family. We were going to maybe take a, you know, a three month overseas trip, like just the things, the way that we were going to be parents was just sort of gone. Um, yeah. I mean, we could have done it, but it would have been a disservice to my son. You know, I kind of think of it in the same way I think about breaking up, you know, when you have a breakup with somebody, you can know that it's the right decision, but you still have that, there's almost a period of grief for the life you thought you were going to have. And it's not Absolutely. that you think the breakup shouldn't happen or that it's, you know, uh, it's not that you want to stay with that person necessarily, but there is this grief period of expectation that you're grieving. You're losing something that you thought you were going to have. And I feel like when you get a diagnosis that is all encompassing like this, 
you do go through a similar grieving period. Not that you don't love your child, not that you would wish them to be any different even, but there is that period that you go through where you say, my life and their life isn't going to look like what I had dreamed it would. Maybe it'll turn out much, much better, you know? And you can know that consciously and still feel that pain of, this isn't what I expected. This wasn't what I was planning for. And that's okay. And it's okay to have those yeah. feelings. Um, and you mentioned guilt. You know, my I had a lot of guilt. Uh, two out of three of my children have uh, diagnoses. One of my children has apraxia like your son. And um, there is a lot of guilt that goes along with that. There was nothing that, you know, you could have done differently, but it still hurts because I think as mothers, well, parents in general, but I think mothers in particular, we feel as if we control the outcome of our children's lives when they're young. And I think that's because of the burden that's placed on mothers by society. You you must nurse, you must not give sugar before age 10, you must go to the best preschools and you must, they must be reading at 18 months or you are failing as a mother. And I think that's where that guilt comes from because there is this expectation that we as mothers form our children's lives from the moment they emerge from the womb. <laughs> we are sort of their guides. And if that path deviates from what we envisioned as that path, we immediately feel like we've failed. And it's like I said, it's it's easy to say that it's not our fault, but those feelings of guilt, I think, are universal, particularly amongst parents of children who have special needs. And I think it's important that we talk about that because so many of us are sitting alone with that guilt. And we shouldn't be alone. We should be talking about it with each other. And telling each other it's not your fault and it's okay and even taking that a step further to not only is this not your fault but your child is going to be wonderful and perfect and successful and happy just as they are because you love them and that is the most important part after you got this diagnosis you mentioned you had to stop working your life became therapy, conferences, learning about this diagnosis. Did things ever get easier? Um, when my son went to school, so after, you know, birth to three is early intervention. And then we were very fortunate in that our school district took basically one look at him and said, go look at the out of district private schools and tell us where you want to go, which oh, wow. is rare. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we did. And um, he's been and will be graduating next month from the same school he started at when he was three. So we were very fortunate. He got into a really terrific school with different programs. There's a multiply disabled program. There's a autism program. They're very professional. They're very collaborative. They've, they've been absolutely wonderful. Like I look forward to my IEP meetings, which, you know, most most parents can't really say that. <laughs> I don't think um, I've ever because heard I know say that. <laughs> they're, they're on my son's side. They're on my side. They're open. You know, if I need anything, I email them. They email me back every single day. When he before email, I would get these communication books. You know, 
were there a handful, less than a handful of teachers and therapists who weren't ideal? Sure. But for the most part, our experience there has been terrific. So once he went to school, I would catch up on sleep for one thing. He would go to school and I would go to sleep. And yeah, I just slowly started to be able to kind of have a little bit of space, you know, away from the constant care and the constant worry and the constant guilt and shame and everything else that went along with that to think about and to really like look at what you were talking about, which is why is this all on me? Like, where did we get this idea that, you know, if you're not like the most devoted, I will do anything for my child kind of parent, not that I wouldn't, but, but that's like, unless you're effusive about it, then you're a less than mother. And there's just, there was a, just a ton of shame about, I absolutely wanted this to go away. I absolutely wanted, you know, some magic bullet that was going to, you know, make everything all better. You know, like who wouldn't, but it, he's struggling. I'm struggling. Everybody's struggling. I want this to be easier. So whatever that is, I want that. But you know, you're not allowed to feel like that. Right. <laughs> you're not really right. allowed to say that out loud. And so um, that part became kind of hard, even in the disability autism community. I also didn't want to spend all of my time in the disability community. I didn't want to every Saturday to be with only other parents whose kids had disabilities. I had friends that I've had. I wanted to still see them. I didn't want to do that. And I didn't really want that to be all that my son experienced either because I just didn't, I just was, I, I, you know, and then I felt incredible guilt and shame. I'm so selfish and all that stuff. But like, where did we get this image of this self-sacrificing mother? And I just started to really think about that and really think about kind of the water we swim in, which is just very unhealthy yeah, <laughs> for women. And um so it did start to get easier when I started to sort of shed some of those beliefs and I started to, I went back to yoga and I, and I decided I wanted to get my, my yoga teacher training because we, by, by this point we had adopted a little girl and I was just overwhelmed and I found myself like sort of yelling at my kids all the time and I didn't want to do that. So I had always practiced yoga and I knew that if I kind of immersed myself in it, it would really help me. And it turns out that I was a pretty good yoga teacher and I really, it really helped me with a lot of those feelings because it's all about self-observation without judgment. So I can sit there and I can be in the feelings that I'm having without making myself bad or wrong or, you know, not a good mother and all those things. It was incredibly helpful. Um, and that's when things kind of really started to get easier and some, some, parents do this much quicker it's just everybody's different but it led me to a state of acceptance uh in a way that I don't know that I would have you know acceptance is one of the what are the stages of grief right and and when you were talking about grief earlier people expect you to grieve when you break up from a relationship they expect you to grieve when you someone you lose someone they don't expect you to grieve a life that you didn't get to have that seems just a little too like luxurious right like like who you have what you have and you're just gonna accept it and it's it's a major deal it's a major major shift in 
who you think you are, who you now are expected to be. Um, and we don't have any idea how to do that because we don't, in our society, grieve publicly. We hide that, even, even when it's expected, when someone dies. You know, there's a lot of, you know, how you're supposed to act when you're grieving and nobody does it the same way. So we don't even have a really good model <laughs> for grieving when someone dies, right? So grieving as a parent for the child that you don't have seems like gross to people, I think. And so I really wanted to, I learned to give myself space for that. And I, I, I really wanted to do that for other parents because there's so much wrapped up in, in how you parent a special needs child how you are a human being and an adult person separate from being the parent of a special needs child. There's just a lot. So, but it did get easier after, after my yoga teacher training. And I, I was really able to just kind of be in myself and be okay about that. Yeah. And you really picked up pieces of yourself that you had valued prior to becoming a parent like yoga, and you were able to become or re-become that person you were before you became a parent. And so many of us lose ourselves when we become parents that that's so vitally important that we don't lose those pieces of ourselves that make us happy and fulfilled and peaceful. And for you, that was yoga. And for other people, it may be completely different, but whatever it is, it's so vitally important that you don't lose those pieces of yourself that make you, you, while you also go through this journey of parenthood. So tell me, where are you guys in that journey today? How are things now? You mentioned <laughs> your son's about to graduate. That's so fantastic. Are you looking towards the future? Oh boy. Yes. And it is. Uh, I will tell you, to be perfectly honest, it's pretty terrifying. <laughs> um, the world of adult services, as I am now discovering, is slim pickings. It's a very different world. And for for adults like my son who have behavioral issues, who have very high support needs, there isn't much out there. And so <laughs> what am I doing? I am starting a residence for <laughs> with five other parents for adults like my son who have behavior issues and high support needs and they deserve to have services they deserve to have you know a rich and fulfilled life even though they have aggressive behaviors it's you know they what are you going to do they're going to the way that adult the adult world works is they're it's you're not entitled to anything you have to be eligible so you know, day programs can decide, you know, they have behaviors. We, we're not, we don't want to take them. So what's my kid supposed to do? Sit at home, which only increases his behaviors and makes it less likely he'll be able to attend a program. You know, it's terrible. It's terrible. Um, things have changed a lot from when my son was little. Um, I think there's a lot more conversation about, you know, mostly women and parents like, regaining their sense of themselves there's more resources there's more talk about how to how to do this without all the guilt and you know it's a little bit more open there's a lot more people talking about it when my son was little not so much so that's fantastic but now that <laughs> now that they're moving into the adult world 
uh, it is, it's a crisis really. And the housing crisis is, is it's horrifying. And in New Jersey, they, they decided that, you know, we don't want to put people in institutions, quote unquote. So we don't want places where a lot of people live. And so they made a law, which I think that they've now changed, where there's only allowed to be three to four adults in one given group home. Only we don't pay our direct support professionals enough. And we, you know, we put these places in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of some suburban neighborhood where there's absolutely nothing to do. How is that not institutional? Right. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. So the whole, the whole model needs to shift. So while he has made incredible progress and he's amazing and I can envision and I do daily because I have to <laughs> the happy life that he's entitled to, I am going to have to work my behind off to make that happen because it doesn't really exist. And there are models for it. And we are looking at those models, but, and there are lots of parents doing what we're doing because there isn't enough out there. So, I mean, ideally the changes that have happened in, in the school age world will start to happen in the adult world because all these kids, they grow up right, right, <laughs> you know, and they become adults. And like, we have just let them, they call it falling off the cliff. We have just let them fall off the cliff. So that's yeah, you like, age out of the system and then what? Yep. And then what? Right. And then no one's really looking out for you. And that's our big thing. It's like, what you said earlier was like, no, your job is to just love your child. That's enough. And there's no one going to love my child like I do ever, but there ought to at least be someone who's willing to love my child. And he shouldn't have to settle for somebody getting paid $17 an hour, you know, sitting in the kitchen on a cell phone. Right. You know, that's just who would want that for anyone they love. It's just a terrible um, and not to say there aren't terrific people working in this field. There are, um, but the burnout rate is high it's and not well it's paid. very hard, it's, yeah. not well paid or trained or, you know, we don't treat these individuals who are doing this incredibly important work like professionals and right. we need to, you know, right. Um, so that's my, my soapbox, but in, <laughs> in general, um, you know, it's a really big transition and it's probably the biggest one he's ever going to make because even going to school, you know, you have all these people around you to, you're, you're learning, you're in this environment when you get out of school and you're, you know, now you're an adult and like, this is, this is the rest of your life. And he doesn't know how to do the rest of his life. And right you know, we want to make sure that it's as good as it can be. I love that you're taking your experience as a parent and you are advocating for other adults as well, who are going through this same transition that your son is about to go through. You mentioned that you're putting together a residential home with a group of other parents. Yes. It's called Home Life 21. It's a nonprofit that we formed and we are in the early stages, we're doing lots and lots of fundraising. You can go to homelife21.org if you'd like to make a donation. Um, and we're looking for property that we're probably going to look to like the farmstead kind of model. Um, oh. We weren't initially interested in that. We wanted to do a cafe. We were like, what's this with the farm? But there's a place in Ohio called Bittersweet Farms, and they were the start of this model. 
And the notion of our adults being outside, being doing physical activity to maintain the property, to maintain animals, to do the gardening is actually really helpful for them for lots of sensory reasons, for proprioceptive reasons. There's lots of really good benefits to that kind of a thing. And we also want to make sure that when they come home from a day program or potentially a supported employment program, that they have stuff to do, you know, that there's, that there's, there's property to, you know, because our guys go out into the community for sure, but it needs to be supervised. They're not just going to go off on their own down the road to the street and get a cup of coffee. That's, that's just not, they, their support needs are higher than that. So where they live needs to be stimulating. Um, So we're looking into finding property where we can have them live in a house, have this property, some animals, some gardens, that kind of thing that needs maintenance, you know, that, that they can do plantings. They can, you know, go feed the chickens. They can collect eggs. They can, you know, give the horses, hey, whatever they need to do. Um, But that there's always, and that there's a staff in the place that's kind of always there that, that. And I picture like, you know, young people who are enthusiastic to be in that kind of environment where they work outside. And, and I'm guessing that it might be more appealing and it might be more conducive to attracting people who have the enthusiasm to work with our, our adults so that they come home from their job and, or their, their day program and they, you know, have something to eat and then they go out and they do an hour or so of, you know, activity out in the barn or they, you know, they go for a swim if we have a pool and then, you know, then there's staff that help them prepare dinner so that their day is full until the time, you know, there's always choices. They don't have to go and do that. You know, that's part of the adult world is like they're choosing their lives. So, you know, they don't have to go out and feed the horses if they don't want to. If they want to go upstairs and be on their device, they can go do that. But that it's available and that's not the only thing that they get that they have to do. So I, I just envision like those kinds of models popping up more and more. And then eventually over time, moving into another phase where we build more, either more housing for other adults and also programs where we are respite potentially for other families to come and stay. So mom and dad go relax by the pool and we take, you know, Johnny out to feed the, the, the horses and collect some eggs you know they get an afternoon to relax their child gets to see the place and you know and it's somewhere where they're welcome you know oh, amazing they're not worrying about you know what their child is going to do and um they're going to make noise or they're going to have a meltdown or whatever you know it's not a lot of places people feel welcome to to go so that's overall our kind of vision and I know there's people all across the state and the country looking to do similar things. And it's, it's unfortunate that it's had to be parents who take this on themselves because we don't have any kind of programs supported by the government or Medicaid, you know, it's a messed up system, the way that the funds are distributed. So, I mean, I think it will change because it's going to have to change, but it's going to be us (laughs) that, that initiates the change. So. Well, and thank goodness we have people like you who are willing to initiate that change and advocate for that change and advocate for our adult children 
who are going to need that continued level of support. Listeners, I'm going to put those links in the show notes. So if you do want to learn more or you'd like to donate in support of this amazing cause, you can go to our show notes and follow the link. And Jane, thank you so much for being with me today. This has been so fantastic. I am in awe of everything that you're doing to support this community. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was lovely chatting with you today. That's all for today, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to follow or subscribe and check out today's show notes for free downloadable resources and a link to join your village, our Facebook community. Catch you next time.